I think you can do two or three things. You can be good at your job, you can be good with your family, or you can spend lots of time on yourself. And I think that if you're good with your family and good at your work, then that takes care of the third one as well. I think like if we're looking at advice for young lawyers is you got to love what you do, but you also have got to love what you don't do as well. Don't be out there trying to provoke people into a reaction unless a reaction is really needed, and in which case you should, but don't be unduly provocative. State the facts, you know, use reasoned analysis, and, and you might get a lot of blowback, but if you feel comfortable in standing behind and it's driven by your principles, then the blowback, and usually the blowback is from people that either are being enormously partisan or don't understand the issue or don't care to understand the issue or being inflammatory for the sake of being inflammatory, so you just have to let that go. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Emily Tamman and Michael Spratt are a powerhouse couple in Canadian law. In addition to their remarkable accomplishments in court, Michael and Emily's influence is far-reaching with their groundbreaking and award-winning podcast, The Docket. In 2018, Emily was named one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers by Canadian Lawyer Magazine for her active roles in practice, her contributions as a professor at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law, and her political involvement as a candidate for the NDP in the 2015 federal election. Emily intends to springboard off that momentum and run again for the NDP in the upcoming 2019 election for the riding of Ottawa Vanier. Anyone who follows Canadian criminal developments in the news, Senate and legislature would immediately recognize the name and contributions of Michael Spratt. Michael's passion for criminal law reform has placed him before the Senate and parliamentary committees on dozens of occasions where they seek his advice, insights and unhindered criticisms on proposed improvements to the criminal justice system. In this episode, we join Michael and Emily at the Chateau Montebello during the attendance at the annual CCLA conference discussing how they manage their active legal lifestyles together. Once again, this episode is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. Be in the know. Here are the top five sources that Canadian criminal lawyers find on Lexis Advanced Quick Law. Canadian Sentencing Quantums, Halsbury's Laws of Canada, Criminal Offences and Defences by Alan Gold, Sapinka, Letterman and Bryant, The Law of Evidence in Canada, Criminal Procedure, First Letterman and Bryant, and Halsbury's Laws of Canada, Criminal Procedure by Alan Gold. For this episode, LexisNexis has offered a free demo of Lexis Advanced Quick Law Criminal Essentials. Just visit LexisNexis.ca slash Criminal Essentials to try out this wonderful program. Once again, it's LexisNexis.ca slash Criminal Essentials. And with that, we bring to you the next episode of Of Counsel. Okay, so the tables have turned. Uh, <laughs> here I am at Montebello with Emily Tamman and Michael Spratt on Of Counsel. And normally, I'm the one listening to your podcast, and I have to say, 
your podcast was very instrumental in me getting started. And I thought, hey, that sounds pretty cool. So now I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. The legal power couple is the start. <laughs> I'm down. Let's do it. If you're going to call us that, then we're all in. Okay. So um, before we get into sort of the finer points, um, just set the stage here a little bit. So here we are at the um, Defense Council Association of Ottawa's 30th Annual Conference, which I know you guys have been to almost every year, right? Um, I guess since it's, well, not like, 30, obviously. The last like 15, though. It's 15, actually yeah. for Adds half of quick. it. Yeah. And so um, before we get into the finer points of what you both love about the law, how you got into it, all that sort of stuff, let's start with a cliche question that maybe a distant relative would ask at an awkward family gathering. How'd you guys meet? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually, we, uh, we often have controversy over this question, even amongst ourselves. We met in first year law school, speaking of cliches, uh, (laughs) at Dalhousie in Halifax. And uh, I'll tell my version. Mike can tell his weird, (laughs) distorted version that he's invented for himself. But uh, Adele has a um, very famous institution called the Domus Legis Society, which is the law school pub. I love how it has a Latin name because it makes it sound academic, when in fact it's a place to go and drink beer with your friends. Probably hard to pronounce after a few pints, too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, so every week, you know, most of the students go there to have a drink. And so we sort of just vaguely knew each other there. And then um, Mike called to ask me out on a date, but I wasn't home, and he left a message on my machine that said, um, hi, Emily, um, this is Mike from law school. <laughs> well, there were, I don't know if you know other Mikes or not. I needed to identify myself. But then, so I think our first date was actually on April Fool's Day. That's right. Which is yeah. great. April 1st, 2002. <laughs> and... So we went out on a couple dates, then it was the old-fashioned times where we actually didn't have digital photos, but had to like print out the photos. Right. So Emma was showing me a photo album from earlier in that year, and I happened to notice that I was in the background of every single photo she took. So I think it was sort of like meant to be semi-stalking me, but it's okay because it worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like indirect. I like that. That's like The stars are aligned on that one. Totally. So... Both of you, uh, in my opinion anyway, are remarkable lawyers with many aspects to your profession and community involvement that we're going to try and explore. But if we could break it down to one title, Emily, how do you define yourself these days and as a title? <laughs> these days are a little tricky because I'm kind of between gigs at the moment. So right. I've just come off of two years teaching at the University of Ottawa. And at the moment, I'm just uh, volunteering full time on a municipal campaign. So I've gotten pretty involved in politics. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what's occupying me. I, right now, I would say I'm a, a community activist and podcast host. <laughs> Michael, still going with hardcore criminal defense lawyer? Hardcore criminal defense lawyer and... <laughs> perpetual single dad widowed to elections. <laughs> Campaign spouse. Uh, yeah. Emily ran in the federal election in 2015, then there was a by-election in 2018, and then now with the municipal campaign, I think she's actually out more and doing more than she was in her own election campaigns. Um, so yeah, house husband, criminal lawyer. Nice. So how did you each get involved in law then? Um, like, let me put it another way. Did you know that you both would be going to law school? Um, is this something you always had on your mind? or? So I'll tell you a funny story about that. It's funny for me when you refer to us as a legal power couple because I grew up in a family where my parents were a legal power couple. Ah, uh, destiny. When I was a teenager, my dad was the deputy attorney general and my mom was a court of appeal judge. So I spent most of my youth insisting to people that I would not be a lawyer. 
Uh, and people, ever since I was really little, people would say, are you going to be a lawyer like when you grow up like your mom and dad? And I would say, no. <laughs> so being a very type A person, I rebelled by going to McGill and studying biochemistry, oh. uh, which was a type A person's form of rebellion. And uh, when I told my dad that I was going to be studying biochemistry, he said, and you can imagine how much this irked me as a teen. He said, we're so proud of you yeah, that right. you, you, know, you understand all this science stuff. And when you ultimately realize that what you actually want to be as a lawyer will totally support you. And <laughs> you know, neither of my siblings are lawyers. They didn't have that pressure. But my dad sort of saw in me the qualities and temperament of a lawyer. And so by about my third year, I sort of sheepishly went to my parents and said, well, I'm thinking I might want to apply to law school. And right. um, so, yeah. So full so circle, despite like, you know, dyeing your hair black and getting exactly. into biochemistry. <laughs> exactly. It all it always happens that way, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, know, you end up being your parents. That's how it always is. Mm -hmm. Michael, what about you? So I don't come from a legal background at all. Both my parents are teachers, and I don't think I ever actually knew a lawyer until I started working at law firms. Um, so I always thought that I'd be a teacher because I think maybe like as a kid, you always think that only your parents have like the only jobs in the world. So I was like, well, my mom's a teacher, my dad's a teacher, like all their friends are teachers. I guess that's what you have to be. Um, but I also was slightly nerdish. I did, um, I, I did biology and environmental science in undergrad. And it wasn't until sort of late in the undergrad process that I sort of realized that maybe I want to go to law school. And I guess the, the big tipping point was I went to get a letter of reference from my uh, paleontology professor, who's like this like 1960s Jacques Cousteau, like <laughs> adventurer type of guy, like Indiana Jones, where he'd like disappear for three months into the jungle and come right. out with various Susie things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, so I went to him and I said, you know, well, I did well in your class. Will you write me a letter of recommendation or a reference for law school? And he said, I will, but I'm sick and tired of all you, like all you guys going and being like doctors or going to law school or doing these other things and being like engineers like I need someone who's going to do paleontology and so he said I'll, I'll write you a reference letter but um, you have to take 24 hours to consider my offer which is you can come with me do your masters and we'll spend the summer uh, in a submarine studying coral reefs off the ancient coral reefs off the east, east coast of Canada and for some reason I chose law <laughs> Because well, that was just as fun as being a submarine. <laughs> but Mike also worked for a prominent criminal defense lawyer during your undergrad, right? Yeah. So the last, um, the sort of between third and fourth year of undergrad, I worked with uh, Dean Paquette in, oh, okay. in Hamilton. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think, sort of what cemented for me what I wanted to do, and especially criminal defense work, because Dean is um, has been around Hamilton for a long time. Right. So you're watching these big jury trials and yeah and it was a crazy trial it was like the the new courthouse in hamilton had just opened and it was the first big trial that they had there and it was a large like mafia murder trial with like snipers on the roof and crazy security and john rosen was representing one of the co-accused and so before i knew anything about lawyers or anything about criminal law i got to see dean paquette and john rosen doing a crazy complicated and, and intense murder trial and from there it was it was done there's no paleontology for me after that right no submarine was bringing you no back way. From <laughs> you deep sixed yourself so uh, speaking of prominent criminal lawyers um 
you guys have a great story about, well, Michael does anyway, about how your article, his articles were stolen from him from Brian Greenspan's office. Tell me about that. Yeah, so <laughs> I went to Dalhousie with, uh, so Emily was in my class and my partner and good friend, actually the first person I met before law school started, Howard Krongold. And so we had all applied for um, articles in Toronto and uh, Howard and Emily had applied for a clerkship at the Court of Appeal. So we did all our interviews and it was the callback day, like the five o'clock when you get the call and the phone rang. It was Brian Greenspan. And he said, I just want to say we had this great interview and it was fantastic. And you're my second <laughs> choice. But unfortunately, we only hire one articling student. And so I said, that's sort of disappointing, but that's OK. And he's like, actually, I think, you know, the guy, it's Howard Krongold that we hired. And, you know, how he stole my articling job, I, 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 I got my second choice, Hicks Block Adams, which turned out to be an awesome first choice. But only later did I find out that the reason that Howard had to take the Greenspan job was because Emily took his spot at the Court of Appeal. He was their second choice. So really, I didn't get to article with Brian Greenspan because of Emily. Well, listen, if it's any consolation, I too was waiting for that call from Brian Greenspan's <laughs> office. So I was like, you can get probably 10 or 11 he on the He tells list. everyone that they're their second choice. <laughs> So, Michael, I know your story quite well because, like you, um, you know, like I said, I didn't get a call from Brian's office and we were forced to roam, roam the uh, criminal law purgatory, also known as set day court in the halls of Old City Hall. And uh, this is in 2005. You were at Hicks Block Adams at the time. Uh, I was at Pankowski's. And what are some of your fondest memories of that time? Because I have a lot of great ones. But oh, I mean, Old City Hall is an amazing place that I think everyone should practice. I mean, it's... Um, it's the busiest Ontario Court of Justice in, 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 in the province. And, I mean, it's quirky because it wasn't set up to be a, a courthouse. So, I mean, there's like the trial coordinator's office was like up on the fifth floor. You had to go through like a trap door to get to that <laughs> right. office. The half floor. Yeah. Remember that? Like that there's a half. The DOJ was on the half it floor. It was like a... Being like John Malkovich. Yeah, it was it like really a weird was. like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory thing where like, you know, <laughs> the corridors got smaller as you walked and there was like candies <laughs> on the wall and stuff like that. But I mean, it was... But there's always stuff going on. The judges were walking the hallways because the elevators were always broken. And actually, as we were when we were articling, there was that CBC show, This Is Wonderland, about right. about being a lawyer at Old City Hall. So it was sort of cool to see it that way. And I mean, it was right before um, you know there was a lot of technology and, and sort of like streamlined practices in courthouses. Um, so I remember when they were first instituting all these rules, where you know they uh, had specific days of the week that different people had to come depending on on their mm -hmm. last name mm -hmm. uh, the alphabet system and i remember it was the first day that this happened it was in the federal court it was the letter n and they the the jp reads out the docket and he says okay uh line 54 mr nguyen and like 30 <laughs> people stand up <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 the Mr. Nguyen with, that was born January 1st. And like, <laughs> there's even more people standing up. And it was just this chaos of like, everyone had the same last name. Everyone had the same charge. Most of them had the same birthday and no one spoke any English. <laughs> and so it was just like complete chaos. But that's sort of how Old City Hall it worked. Really was. It, was, yeah. it was just like a chaotic system that somehow came together and it, it was fantastic. Yeah, it really was. So Emily, while mm -hmm. um, Michael was doing this with, with me, um, arguing with uh, Marco Mendicino, now an MP in 114 <laughs> court, court, over whether or not we accept a certificate of analysis by fax. Um, what were you doing at the Court of Appeal? 
I was having almost the opposite experience because I was at Osgood, which is the opposite of chaos. And I was lucky enough to be clerking for Mark Rosenberg. So really, I mean, I came to it obviously already with a strong interest in criminal law, but he was an incredible mentor and he was very generous with his time. And so gave me a lot of feedback on my writing. And uh, I was it was just such an enormous privilege. I also spent part of my clerkship with the then Chief Justice Roy McMurtry. Um, I just had an incredible experience. Um, But it's funny because it reminds me Mike's very first day of articles and we had just moved to Toronto for the summer because we were um, at Dal at the time and uh, and hey, Mike it's Frank Adario <laughs> it is Frank Adario <laughs> we're getting Hi, podcast bombed <laughs> um, I uh, Mike's very first day of articling we're talking about here and uh, he said I don't know what to do because they told me don't come to the office just go straight to Old City Hall and I have like 29 clients in three different courts at the exact same time and I don't know how I'm supposed to manage that. And so I actually think for Mike, it was, it, and for anyone, it's a really, really great place to get your feet wet and train and figure out how things move through the system. Like right. when you're just doing really intense, high volume uh, set dates, you actually learn a lot. Well, there isn't much deep thought going. It's more strategic of how can we mess this up so that all the ends end up on one day and yeah. uh, Marco <laughs> no, but, loses track of the certificates of analysis, right? But it's funny because I did two clerkships and then eventually found my way to the federal crown. And I never, it, it took me a long time before I felt comfortable with just the kind of those mechanics that aren't really in a textbook. They're not in the criminal code. Every courthouse is a little bit different. And I remember going to set dates one of my first day and they said, all right, we're going to just kick it over into number seven. And I'm like, what? I have no idea what number seven is. You know, you do, right. like you do learn a lot when you're a student and you're just managing things as they move through the system. So let me ask you this, because you're one of the few people that have clerked for uh, Justice Rosenberg, the late Justice Rosenberg. And are there any particular moments that stand out for you and lessons that were passed on or anything like that come from this incredible legal mind? I mean, every single day was another lesson. I I mean, one thing that stands out for sure is that we, you know, all the law clerks get to take their turn going to Kingston for the inmate appeals. So three clerks, three, a panel of three judges. And um, I sort of planted the seed with him, but he made it happen that we were able to go and have a tour of Kingston Penitentiary. And this is something that, you know, a lot of folks are saying that not enough judges are doing, like sort of going and seeing, you know, the inside. And it was, it was important to him. He didn't need to go, obviously. He had been a defense counsel. He knew what mm-hmm. uh, what it's like. But we, we took the whole panel and, and all the clerks. And that, that's definitely a memory that stands out. And other than that, just, you know, he, he was, like I said, incredibly generous with his time. So he would sit down with me and we would, you know, debate the case. And, and he was, um, you know... F- thoughtful and engaging with me and you know you look back it's almost embarrassing like just being that young and inexperienced (laughs) but he never just sort of said like shut up Tam and you're being an idiot so yeah and I mean I worked on some really interesting cases with him and it was really it was a it's actually it's been like one of the highlights of my career so far um which is sad to say because it was before I was even fully a lawyer but I remember we used to have these fireside chats and at one point someone came and delivered a workshop called Managing the Transition from Clerking to Working because it's hard for people because it is a it's a pretty incredible job to have that early on in your career. Well, that's one thing that like it's always this amazing contrast because you're sitting there one day arguing about whether this is an N matter or an M matter. And then the next day you're, you know, for someone like yourself, you're sitting there in the Court of Appeal listening to these very lofty arguments by Frank Adario arguing something, saying, you know, this should change the law for the better. And then the next day, a JP saying, this just can't go to Tuesday. And in and, and the latter, your litigation skills completely fail. And, <laughs> you know, it's going to a Tuesday. But, so, Michael, I'm walking around Old City Hall and all of a sudden you're not there anymore. It, 
You've just gone to Ottawa. What happened, man? Well, um, I maybe before said that Emily was potentially stalking me when we first met, um, <laughs> but it turns out that maybe I was stalking her a bit because we had uh, we were living together in Toronto. Um, she was clerking the Court of Appeal. Uh, Hicks I, I offered me a job to come back, and it's a place that I would love to have stayed. And then uh, Emily moved to Ottawa to clerk at the Supreme Court, and. I followed her there, and I don't think we ever intended on, on really staying very, very long. Um, but there's this great story that um, from law school where in property class, someone was saying, like, I don't understand, like, why you have different rules for, like, common law versus, you know, legally married people. Um, isn't it a choice to be in a common law relationship? So shouldn't there be different rules? And Actually, I think it was me who said to the prof, I just think that if people choose, this was when the Supreme Court was hearing a case about um, the uh, division of assets among common law couples. And I said, it just seems to me that if people choose to arrange themselves in such a way that they're deliberately not opting in to all the legal obligations of marriage, that it shouldn't be imposed upon them. And and the, the, the prof said, yeah, the thing is, I think the problem with that analysis is that a lot of common law couples, it's kind of like you leave, you leave your toothbrush there one day and five years later, you have two kids and a mortgage. And uh, <laughs> That's the, exactly what happened to us in Ottawa. I mean, we didn't intend to stay. And then like, like three years later, we had two kids and a mortgage. And um, it's Ottawa's a really good place to be a, a criminal defense lawyer. Um, you know, there's one courthouse downtown. There's one jail. There's no traffic. Every time you need to drive out of town, you know, instead of an hour drive of gridlock trying to get from downtown Toronto to Scarborough, you're, you know, driving along the river to some, like, picturesque, like, eastern township and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a good place to practice. And we just sort of ended up staying. <laughs> yeah. They don't serve beer at this podcast. <laughs> go get one. We can. Uh, Mike yeah. has one right there. Yeah, you can get, go go pick up a round. <laughs> don't be shy. Frank Odario is off to get us beer. I hope. I hope so too. So, but on that that point, Michael, it's something that's that's often you know um, I've I've wondered about because you know you've gone from old Toronto, which has multiple courthouses and all these different procedures from courthouse to courthouse, and then into a unified system in Ottawa. So, what could a jurisdiction like Toronto learn from Ottawa? Well, I think that the one thing and the biggest difference between Ottawa and Toronto is, I mean, you, you have the same sort of serious crime. Um, you have the same serious judges and, and the same procedure, but the bar, I feel, is, is a lot different. And I think that's just by virtue of size. I mean, there's one courthouse. All the criminal defense lawyers are always together at that courthouse. And that's a very different feeling than in Toronto, where you have, like, multiple courthouses and counsel moving around all the time. You can't burn any bridges in Ottawa. You can't burn a judge or burn a crown because you're going to be with them the next day. And so it's sort of that, like, it's almost a tiny bit like high school where, you know, it can be a bit restrictive, but at the same time, it's a great place to start off being a lawyer because the mentorship is right there. You never have to seek it out. Um, and I mean, I think that's one of the awesome things about Montebello in this conference. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't need to come, you know, two hours out of the city to, to a place like this. But again, like, it's like you don't leave. You're all together. And it's that collegiality that I felt sometimes was missing a little bit in Toronto or that you had to work a bit harder to, to get, but is there in Ottawa. And I think that that's built into some of the informal processes. So it's not necessarily like a machine, but it 
you know, is able to incorporate some of that flexibility that you have when you have those sort of those close relationships. Right. And, you know, in fairness, it's still a pretty big bar. Like this is my first time here and it's really impressive to see all these lawyers here. Very serious practitioners. It must be at least 150 people at the conference, probably closer to 200. And uh, talking about some very uh, high level aspects of law and, and what we know recently, a lot of really important cases coming out of, of Ottawa. I mean, they've always been that way, but just it seems as of late, you know, the striking down of the human trafficking uh uh, so, um, but procedurally, like, do you see a big advantage from not having to relearn set date systems every time you step outside of, you know, another 10 mile radius? Yeah. And I mean, we see that when we go to like other smaller jurisdictions like Cornwall or Perth or sort of these like small towns that have like an even closer knit bar and even sort of more sort of like ingrained and closed systems. Um, but yeah, when you just have one courthouse downtown, like you know where you need to be, you can walk from your office to the courthouse and things don't change quite as quickly, which, you know, can be a downside too at some points. But I think Ottawa's a, a great place to practice because, I mean, we don't only have good law that happens there, but I mean, we have parliament there as well. Um, so there's a ton of good opportunities to get involved in politics and, you know, go to the Supreme Court when you're... Uh, you know, a young lawyer in Toronto, you can't just like pop over to the Supreme Court to see a hearing, but it's totally doable here. Right. So let's talk about the Supreme Court, Emily. Um, I mean, maybe I'm off on this, but it seems a little unusual that someone would clerk for both the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court um, and awesome at the same time. So how did that happen? It was more unusual at the time. It's quite common now, I Is think. It? In fact, I think it's uh, it's it's almost impossible to get a clerkship at the Supreme Court of Canada if you haven't first articled or clerked at a court of appeal or done an LLM. It's just become that way. Um, for me, it was just, I, you know, I the first time I applied to the Supreme Court, I didn't get any interviews, but I did get um, a position at the court of appeal. And the following year, just kind of for kicks, I decided I would apply again. So I applied, I guess, in third year uh, and I got seven interviews and uh, was lucky enough to get an offer from Justice Binney, which was, um, you know, just again, I, I've you always really, the best I, I have been really fortunate <laughs> in terms of uh, my clerking assignments. Um, and I just I I had very at the time sort of pretty focused ambitions of pursuing a career in academia. That's right. kind of where I saw myself going. Uh, so it seemed like a good fit and just an experience to try. So uh, how are the two different? You know, They're really different. Are they fact, really? Eh? Uh, it's funny that you asked that because over the past couple of weeks, I've been meeting with a lot of my former students who are applying for, for clerkships and some are very focused on the Supreme Court. And I, I really, really strongly encourage them to apply to the Court of Appeal. I enjoyed my Supreme Court clerkship a lot. If I had had to choose one or the other with the benefit of hindsight, I probably would have chosen the Court of Appeal. Um, a couple differences. I mean, when you're at the Supreme Court, when I was there, you were one of three clerks working for a single judge. Now it's up to four clerks. When you're at the Court of Appeal, you're a single clerk uh, working with two judges usually, oh. one or two judges. So the access that you get is is huge. I mean, you're because the judge doesn't have to divide his or her time between multiple students. Um, it's also just a very different dynamic. I mean, you probably even counsel experience that when they appear before the courts. The Court of Appeal is an incredibly collegial court. And so even if you're not clerking for a particular judge, you usually do have an opportunity to get to know them over the course of the year. The Supreme Court, just I think by virtue of its heavy dockets and um, the the nature of the work, it tends to be a little bit more siloed. So you're kind of each chambers is doing its thing. And, and the nice, you know, I had wonderful colleagues that I've remained close with, the other Binney clerks. Um, but uh, you don't really get to know the other judges that much. And even your own judge, um, you know, I 
Justice Binney was a was particularly generous with his time, um, and I and he had annual reunions every year for all his clerks. So I got to know a lot of his former clerks and future clerks as well. But um, it's a different dynamic. And then the other thing I really loved about the Court of Appeal is the mix between what you described, which is the kind of policy function of the court, you know, le- development of, of new legal principles, but also you're just run-of-the-mill error correction. Sure. That, you know, sometimes you do a memo on a case and you can kind of say like, and here's the answer in the jurisprudence, right? Um, which is also satisfying because it, it's more true to what practice will be like, right? Is, right? So, because by the time it gets up to the Supreme Court, all those little errors have been sorted out. It's not getting there on some procedural It's problem. rarely what is the law and it's more often what should the law be, which is great. And it's, it's a privilege to be a part of that process. But um, it means that every case is is heavy with this kind of burden of the, the policy aspect. So uh, where the Court of Appeal, you get to do some cutting edge things that eventually make their way to the Supreme Court. And then you get to just also see just good old fashioned criminal cases and, and other cases as they percolate through the system. So being in those positions, I presume you're uh, able to go and watch a lot of these appeals being heard. And you must have seen some really incredible advocates come before the court in both instances. Do you have any particularly memorable moments or lawyers that you just thought were like so good it was surreal? It's funny. I, I often say, again, I feel on balance. I saw more incredible advocacy at the Court of Appeal than I did at the Supreme Court. There's, there's of course, a lot of great advocacy that happens at the Supreme Court, too, but it was a little more mixed in my experience. Uh, I mean, one one memory that I have, in fact, it involves Frank Adario. <laughs> um, it was, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was Clayton and Farmer. It was definitely a sort of Section 8, Section 9 type of case. And Frank was representing an intervener, the CCLA or the CLA something, I can't remember. And there was a brand new judge on the court who I won't name, but who did not come from a criminal law background and was one of this judge's first cases on the Supreme Court. And there was a question about, I think it was that case because it was it was about roadblocks and when the police yeah. could stop and search. I think yeah, that's I think what that the was issue was. Firmer, but yeah. in any event, so it was about, you know, um, anyway, the judge asked Frank a question because I think Frank said something like, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't um, think it was appropriate for police to just stop people on Young Street and, and search their persons, right? And the judge said, but didn't everyone get searched when they came into the courtroom today, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to go through security when you go into the Supreme Court. And Frank just said, that was a consent search. <laughs> and the judge said, is that the totality of your answer? And he said, yes. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I mean, I we had uh, we had some some great criminal cases. We had some really meaty constitutional cases, like division of powers, revisiting some of the doctrine around that. So when you're right out of law school, every single case we had the social host liability case that came. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of issues that are almost gone from my brain, having focused so heavily on criminal law since. But right. Yeah. Do you remember after you worked on the social host liability case, the decision came out, we had a party at your mom's house um, when she wasn't going to be there and she posted the case on the yeah. fridge? Yeah, she. Uh, we had all these friends from law school that came for a Canada Day party and some of them were intimidated because my mom was on the Supreme Court. This was actually before <laughs> clerking though, actually. It was, a, it, was a, it was maybe the court of appeal version of that case because we were only in first year when we had that party. And uh, my law school friends just thought it was like, so funny because my mom, the Supreme Court judge, had posted a reminder basically um, on the fridge about social host liability and be good because I only have a $2 million insurance policy. Yeah. That's really funny. I want to ask you about your community involvement, uh, Emily, because 
as you said, you 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 know things have changed a lot. You've had um, such a great trajectory into law, and then you were teaching law for a while, and then you got heavily involved into politics and ran in the last uh, election. Um, actually, before that, you were um, working at the Department of well, not the Department of Justice, was it? No, the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. Right, and so and and you ended up uh, on the. Uh, front page of a lot of newspapers <laughs> because of some of the controversy there. So can you tell me about, A, why did you do it, and and B, what kind of happened from it, and C, why are you doing it still, and back into it, and, and, yeah. and making Michael a, a widow of politics? <laughs> so um, after clerking, I went and I joined the, the Public Prosecution Service of Canada in the Economic and Regulatory Prosecutions team. I, I always knew that I would not be a fit for the rest of the work that they do, which is primarily drug prosecutions. Mm. I had my own sort of ethical objections to for myself for that kind of work. I mean, I admire people that do it. Someone has to do it, but it just wasn't for me. So it was actually quite an interesting practice, tax evasion cases. Uh, we had, unlike in Toronto, we had sort of a catch-all team that did tax, customs, immigration, any federal statute that creates an offense. It was interesting work. It was never, it was admittedly a bit of a means to an end. I was there in my child having years so I had three kids and mm. it was it was the perfect place to be to, to have a nice maternity leave and everything else sure. in my later years there so 2014 2015 um I was feeling the weight of the Harper government's approach to justice policy as a federal prosecutor I just was finding it harder and harder to go to work every day in an environment that I just felt that justice policy was going in such the wrong direction. You know, my office would have prosecuted people who had been investigated under Bill C-51. And I I, I just felt, you know, I, I kind of almost jokingly just now mentioned my sort of moral issues with drug prosecutions. But this was becoming like bigger than that, like that I was finding it harder and harder to work in an environment. And not that my colleagues, it's interesting because a lot of people would assume that a really law and order agenda would be something that prosecutors would like. But it was just tough, like mandatory minimum sentences and and so I consider myself quite a positive person, but I was just coming home every day and just complaining and I was feeling so down. Is that true? It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, I was really distraught. Like I really, sure. and it wasn't always manifesting itself like, oh, I'm sad because of Harper's justice policy, but I was just really frustrated at work and not happy. And, and then, you know, it's interesting because I was sort of just slowly starting to think about what else could I do? And I think I need to leave here because I just don't feel right being here and, and then I was approached by someone. It's, it's you know, they, they say women need to be asked multiple times to run for office. And that is what happened. I, at my 10-year law school reunion, um, our classmate, Megan Leslie, who um, was elected as an MP for the NDP, kind of just very casually said, have you ever thought of running? And I just laughed, you know. And then uh, Anne McGrath, who was the national director of the party and whose sister was a spouse of one of Mike's colleagues, kind of another time said, yeah, have you ever thought of running? And again, I just laughed. And and then a third time, someone approached me more seriously, and I thought, you know what, actually? Like, here I'm complaining about policies I don't like at the federal level, and I probably have a lot of the skills that are required to, to be in politics, just by virtue of my legal training. And this would be an opportunity for me to kind of, like, put my money where my mouth is, you know, and say, if you don't like something, go out and change it. So but you didn't have any family or anything before getting involved in politics. Like, did you have a sense of what you were getting yourself into when you did it? So I do have a cousin who was elected in 2011 at age 24 for the NDP in Quebec in the, okay. in the wave that elected a lot of young, um, unsuspecting right. <laughs> new Democrats. And so that 
that and my friend Megan, like I would see them in the House of Commons and it did really demystify it for me, but I still don't think I had any real sense. I had never been involved in a campaign of any kind. I'd been a public servant, so I couldn't really be very engaged. I wasn't on Twitter. I wasn't really engaging with political people at all. What was going through your mind, Michael, like when this decision was made or at least forming? Because you had a full on practice at this point. You were probably super busy practicing and running trials and but i mean the one thing that we've always been really good as a family about sort of balancing things out and i think that you know especially as a criminal lawyer that's something that's really important because i mean as you know you go through periods where you're working really intense really crazy hours while you're in a murder trial for you know six weeks and then you have some time off um and so we sort of got used to you know balancing picking up the load we were pretty equal at home and it was always really important to me to be home with the kids and stuff and, you know, I saw that Emily wasn't really happy, right? Um, as a guy, I think it's a male thing. I'm like, well, let's fix this. Here's like a five-point <laughs> plan about like, just quit your job. We'll figure this out. We'll do this. And I mean, I don't think that, that that's often a very productive way to have conversations when someone's unhappy in something. And so when this came along, it was like such a natural fit. It was, it's something you love to do. We're in Ottawa. You're not happy with your job anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've always, and I, I think this is true for you too, Em, we've always just sort of done what we liked. But also, you know, you asked if I knew anyone who was in politics. Mike at the time had already become very involved in his sort of law reform effort. So he was regularly already then appearing before the House of Commons, uh, appearing before the Senate. And he had built a lot of relationships with MPs and senators from all different parties. And so in a lot of ways, I think he had a better sense of of what it was like. And he really, really, really encouraged me. Like, it, it wasn't just that he said, well, if you want to do this, I'll support you. He said, you should do this. <laughs> if anything, I think there was a part of him that wanted to do it too, right? Like that, or at least that the the prospect of, of us taking that next step into a more political realm, um, it wasn't something he had to be dragged into. If anything, it, I was the one that needed the the encouragement. Mm-hmm. And and you did really well. You did, you know, like you almost did it. I mean, listen, I ran in a riding that has been liberal since Confederation and to this day remains liberal. And I did not run for the Liberal Party. So I, I knew uh, I ran also outside of the riding that I live in because Paul Dewar was elected um, for the NDP in Ottawa Centre where we live. So I put my name forward for Vanier, knowing, you know, that it would be an enormously uphill battle. But at the same time, the NDP at the time, before the 2015 campaign, was looking like there was a possibility, but I, I knew it was far from a sure thing. Um, and in the, I ran against not only in a liberal riding, but against a 20-year incumbent who was very popular. Right. Um, so that had its challenges, and we ran a campaign that I think we were all really proud of. It was very substantive. We were talking about the issues, but. The incumbent also ultimately won by the biggest margin of his career because the liberals ended up having a big sweep. And right. and um, and so, you know, despite the fact that I think it was the biggest challenge he had ever faced, <laughs> um, he did well. And then, you know, the way the world works sometimes is really confounding. But he very this was Marie de Belanger and very shortly within weeks of the campaign was diagnosed with ALS mm-hmm. and passed away in less than a year, which mm-hmm. is um, was really, really shocking because I got to know him really well. I saw him you know, almost daily in one of the longest election campaigns in Canadian history. Um, but it did mean that there was a by-election uh, in 2017, actually. And uh, so I ran a second time and I did double my vote share in the in the by-election. But yeah, it's it's tough being a you know, not running for the party that has has such deep roots. 
So you're both very political people, um, you know, legal people, but also you you want to see you can you can see that both of you are very active in trying to establish legal reform and community reform that you're both strong, strongly believe in. Michael, as Emily was saying, you're always before the legislative branch, um, talking to them about recommendations that you see in the Senate as well uh, as acting in, as individuals and also on behalf of uh, organizations. So. Where does politics take the two of you from here? Is there a plan or is it just sort of let's see what the world throws at us? I've never really planned that far ahead. And I think that you sort of need to not plan that far ahead when you're a criminal lawyer because, you know, that next case can always collapse or, you you know, you're always going to fill the gap in your schedule if you stress out about, you know, a year out from now. Um, I think that can you can drive yourself crazy that way. And also one of the things that I'm really proud of, you know, about Emily is that like she's never had to compromise her position she's never softened her position even when sort of that is politically maybe the best thing to do it's you know a point of principle so i mean i don't have any plans um you know going forward but there's a lot of work that i think that we need to do as lawyers and as you know members of of the public to to make sure that we have good policy because i mean i've testified on over 30 bills now and you know, some of that testimony has come back in constitutional challenges, and I've seen how important it is, even if ultimately you're not successful in enacting that policy, um, about putting your voice on the record, putting your principle on the table, and making sure that, um, you know, there is a record there for future work. So let me ask you this. You you both, like, in the course of, of doing this, um, which you're right, is essential uh, and, and part of a healthy democracy. But with it comes a lot of criticism, right? Like, you can see this on Twitter, especially it's getting more and more this way. Um, and lawyers generally, um, I think we have a hard time not being bland. We, we're very concerned about offending someone, offending a judge, offending a crown, how our words might come back to haunt us later on. So I'll start with you, Emily. How do you, how does a, maybe a younger lawyer find the courage to say, you know what, I believe in X and I'm going to do what I want? I actually don't think it's that hard as long as you're not inflammatory and you're not using kind of um, rhetoric that is not constructive. I mean, I, I never worry that my words are going to come back to haunt me because I'm thoughtful about what I say. I, I try to be, you know. So, um, in fact, I was a guest on another podcast recently and the and the host said, you know, we, we don't need to talk about anything controversial or if you want me to add anything out after. And I said, you know, I, I'm happy to share my views on kind of any topic because I'm prepared to stand by the things that I say and I'm not going to say things that I'm not prepared to stand behind, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. So um, I try really hard to be civil while at the same time, Um, you know, I do engage in controversial discussions. I do worry sometimes, you know, for those of us who, who think about the criminal justice system and think about wanting to ensure that it remains, um, safe, um, and that we're not enhancing rather than reducing the number of wrongful convictions. There are some subject areas that can be very challenging in the context of, in particular Twitter, because of the, the, the how little you can say to engage in nuanced discussions about, you know, how can we do better on sexual assault law in such a way that, you know, improves the experience for victims, but also preserves the rights of the accused. Right. And th- these are areas that I sometimes hesitate to jump. That's what actually what I love about the podcast, because it right. gives us a chance to have those conversations in a longer format and to kind of explain nuanced, controversial discussions. But I think young lawyers should don't be out there trying to provoke people into a reaction unless a reaction is really needed. 
and in which case you should, but don't don't be unduly provocative. State the facts. Um, you know, use reasoned analysis, and and you might get a lot of blowback. But if you feel comfortable in standing behind, and it's driven by your principles, then the blowback, and usually the blowback is from people that um, you know either are being enormously partisan or don't understand the issue or don't care to understand the issue or being inflammatory for the sake of being inflammatory. So you just have to let that go. Michael, what uh, what good do you see coming from controversy? And I don't say that in a negative way, in a neutral way, in the sense that stoking conversation. What have you seen positive come out of your willingness to engage? Well, I mean, I think that it's you know, quite often necessary to be a bit provocative. And I mean, if you look at our Twitter histories, uh, the difference between Emily and me, I mean, I, I tend to be a bit more provocative and, and say what I think. Um, I think it's it's a good thing to um, challenge authority, insist on transparency, and I think it's okay to be very strident in those in those demands. Um, I mean, what I have seen a bit lately is that there's a lack of nuance from all sides when it comes to especially criminal justice issues, and. I think that, especially as criminal defense lawyers, I think that sometimes we can do a bit better about trying to bridge that divide because we need to be very strident in our positions. We need to be very, you know, demanding and exact um, when we're in court um, because the stakes are really high. But I think that when you're talking to other members of the public, when you're talking to parliamentarians, when you're talking sort of just outside of the courtroom, sometimes that strict adherence that we have to um, those principles that are so important in court can sort of, you know, build some walls between having, between individuals when you have sort of discussions, especially in, you know, the moment that we're in now, this Me Too mo- moment, where it's a really difficult issue to have conversations about proof beyond a reasonable doubt and accusations and what that means in court and out of court and how that plays out in different contexts. And I think that that's probably one of the big difficulties on Twitter and and when you get these really partisan conversations is that context is lost. And so I think if you can maintain sort of the context of a conversation and be fair, I think it's okay to poke the bear a bit because sometimes, you know, most major changes come after someone has has done that prodding to to um, really encourage the the status quo that sort of that cements sometimes so on that topic then on conversations right because that's really what we're doing now it's what your podcast is all about what are some of the biggest advantages or benefits or just surprises that you've seen come from your podcast over the years I mean, I, I have to say, like, I'm, I'm surprised by the reach of it. Like, when we come to places like this, to conferences, we, like, sometimes feel like minor celebrities with young lawyers. And <laughs> right. when I was teaching at the University of Ottawa, I had some students. I had one international student who had tr- sought to have me as his prof because he'd been listening to the podcast, you know, from abroad kind of thing. Um, so that's been neat. But also just the um, the that people say they're learning something and that's that's why we're doing it now it's it's not necessarily completely how it started um but we you know i don't think of our audience as being exclusively lawyers and i try we really try hard to make it accessible to people who aren't lawyers because some of these issues you know i I don't always feel like the debate that happens in the media um takes the time to really explain the context you know i I mean i even just think about uh, the barton appeal that happened uh, recently at the supreme court and um it's a these are really really challenging complex legal issues and sometimes the kind of societal interest that's parallel to it doesn't fit very well within the applicable legal framework and so we try to at least help people understand 
what the framework is and if and and to give them you know the tools to 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 better understand and therefore maybe challenge um what the status quo is um so that like that's been really interesting just that how diverse our listeners are in terms of their backgrounds and people will reach out to us sometimes um to share their thoughts on things but it's almost always accompanied by thank you so much i really enjoy it i learn a lot so and these are like conversations that we have anyway like we (laughs) sit around the dinner table and (laughs) have these sort of conversations you're gonna talk about the staircase anyway right so (laughs) exactly might as well talk about it together uh, on on air but i think it also provides like a really good excuse for us to meet people and have conversations with other people um, and it's amazing that, like, if you just ask, you can actually have these conversations with people. I mean, the number of, like, parliamentarians and professors and former people that have been involved in the system and harm reduction workers, these are people that, you know, we might not find an excuse to sit down and, and, and talk with. And the podcast really gives us that excuse, which is great. Yeah. And you know what I, I, I love about uh, the podcast? And I say that because in the context, like I said, your podcast largely um, got me interested in podcasts in general. And I think what's great about them is it forces people to actually listen, even though they may not agree with the guests. So you're going to have someone who may be controversial, but you're going to listen to them, even if you feel that you're on the other side of things, because there's no opportunity to interrupt. The traffic is going to be long. You're going to be sitting in there for an hour anyway. And so what I think is great from when I listen to your podcast is listening to someone and truly listening for a good half an hour that I would have otherwise probably just turned the channel or walked out of the room. For me, like an example of that was when we had Aaron O'Toole on to talk about the Cotter decision. And he had just been chirping away on Twitter and saying all kinds of inflammatory right. things. And then we sat down with him and we were, I really enjoyed the conversation that we had with him because there are people who reasonably took issue with that settlement, I think. You know, I mean, there was, it, it's unfair to say we shouldn't even have the conversation. We we felt that it was the right thing. There are a lot of constituencies out there who didn't feel that way. And everyone was just barking at each other, shouting at each other on social media. And it was really nice to sit down for 45 minutes and just talk about, on both sides, like where we were coming from. It's one of the things that energizes me because, you know, the problem with Twitter sometimes is you just want to pull your hair out. And lately, especially with everything that's been happening in the U.S. and with the election of Doug Ford, you do sometimes feel a sense of despair. And then when you actually can have one of those rare moments where you actually reach someone that you tend to be really far apart from on a lot of issues and you see that in a lot of cases those people despite how they come across on social media or elsewhere he was a completely different person when he sat down and had a 45 minute conversation and he knew it was going to go public it's not like we're having a conversation in private right um so yeah that's that's really nice and i actually hope we can find more opportunities to do things like that yeah i I have to say one of the most enlightening uh guests i've had on my show was uh jillian natchu and you know as far as positions go in the criminal justice system she's on the exact opposite, right? She's a very strong advocate of the, the Me Too movement, represented um, uh, Lucy de Couture. Um, but listening to what she had to say and sort of the thoughts that have come through her and from the victims that she represents, you realize you actually aren't too far off on a lot of these things and there's maybe ways to resolve it, but it starts with listening, right? Yeah, I think the, the real problem, especially on Twitter and political discussions, is that there's an inability for each side to agree sort of like on the primary facts and when you can't come to a consensus on like what the landscape is it's sort of hard to know where you want to go and that's I think one of the good things about the O'Toole conversation is we actually sat down instead of just stating our positions and talking over one another we actually found out what he believed the primary facts were in the landscape was and it actually wasn't that different and when you can sort of come to an agreement on the the scape of that the the shape of that landscape it makes 
understanding each other's positions a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to do something I've never done before on this podcast, and I think it's going to be fun. And I won't be able to do Why this. Why are you taking off your shirt? <laughs> <laughs> That's later on. Audio. Okay, so no, what I'm going to do, so here, I'm going to slide over a piece of paper to each of you. And what it is, don't show the other person, okay? It is a list of legal names, concepts, and other things. And I want you to pick one. And you're, it's basically the million-dollar pyramid, okay? So, so you're going to have to describe what the concept is without actually using the term. And I'll see how good you are at, at getting it from the other person, okay? All right. All right. So, Michael, you're starting. Pick a concept. Got it. Got it. Okay. And go. I like beer. Uh, Kavanaugh. Ah. There we go. What? <laughs> are you serious? Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, you know, in his testimony. He likes beer. He doesn't like beer. He likes beer. You guys are on the same wavelength. <laughs> totally. Okay, so go ahead, Emily. Okay. Uh-oh. We've met him twice. He has a huge neck. Met him twice. He has a huge <laughs> neck. The first time we saw him, I said, you said, no, I think that's just another guy with a huge neck. <laughs> Doug Ford. <laughs> Michael, go. <laughs> um, let's say, oh, um, this is the most modern piece of technology that I have. Fax my machine. L- <laughs> <laughs> go. Okay. Um, in 2015, it was harmless. Today, we have to keep it out of the hands of children. Marijuana? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, no, no, I'm trying to pick the easiest one. Um, She is one of the world's biggest entrepreneurs You're awful at this game, Frank. That's Frank Adaro giving counsel in the background. Um, What's her face that wrote Lean In? Is that her from Facebook? No. (laughs) I don't believe you. Is it on my Um, Okay, here, I'm good. Okay, so... The Supreme Court shouldn't delay in giving this decision. Jordan? Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, our favorite place to hang a hammock. Can you trip? Where? Algonquin. Yeah, Algonquin oh, Park. Nice. <laughs> okay, new game. Next okay. one. This game is the newlywed game. Okay? <laughs> so, um, I'm going to... You know we're not married, right? Okay. I don't have a pen, so you're just going to have to remember and be honest. So I'm going to ask you, Emily, what you think Michael's answer would be. Does he need okay. to walk away? The, no, 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 no. He'll oh, ask the question. I'll get it in my head. Okay. In my okay. mind. So the question would be, what is the case that Michael hates the most that's come out of the Supreme Court of Canada? The case that Michael hates the most you coming got out it? of the you Supreme got it in your head? Canada. I got it in my head. I got it in my head. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Um, oh. Oh, this is hard. The case that he hates the most coming out of the Supreme Court of Canada. Oh, you you, you knew so fast. <laughs> can, I, can I give a little tiny hint? It's also my favorite case from the Supreme Court of Canada. Oh, that's an interesting twist. <laughs> ah. The bittersweet cases. I have no idea. How do I not know? Give me another clue. Um, you're... It comes from the time when your mom was on the court. Oh, is it um, the one about the inflationary floor in no. sentencing? Uh, is uh, it comes from my mom's time on the court? Yeah. Oh, is it uh, Melma Levine? It is Melma Levine. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Speaking of marijuana. Um, 
Michael, question to you. Where is Emily's favorite restaurant? Got it, Emily? Belmont. The Belmont in Ottawa. Yep. That's too easy. I'm doing another one. <laughs> you okay. asked me about Supreme Court jurisprudence, I know. and he has to guess where I, I like to drink cocktails. I mean, eat good everywhere. food. The answer is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What was Emily's best day in her profession? You got it, Emily? Okay. For the record, she nodded yes. <laughs> best day, like, in her career overall, because she's had so many different professions. Yeah. And overall, every any day. Okay. My guess is either, and they're connected, the day you left the Federal Prosecution Service or the day that you got the nomination for the NDP in 2015. I was thinking it was the day that I left the PPSC, yeah. Okay. When nice. I blew shit up on my way out the door to boot. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> Frankie Dario is writing inflammatory things on a piece of paper that I'm just ignoring. <laughs> well, again, the power of podcasts. All these things are happening. Our, our listeners can only imagine, right? Uh, I don't, okay. So, He's not wrong. No. <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> All right. So another question for you before we wrap up. I know you guys want to get back to the fun that's going on. Cocktails. Yes, exactly. So tell us... Um, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are in dealing with, basically you both have a very high pace um, lifestyle, right? You're both um, very accomplished professionals. What are some of the tricks you've learned to pass on to other people starting out families and legal careers to make these relationships work? I mean, I think that when it comes to two people working long hours or one person working long hours and having a family, I think the most important thing is to be at home. Um, I've structured my career where I think I come home every day for, for dinner and I sort of get pissed off when I read all these like think pieces from like, you know, young fathers and stuff about like scheduling time and these strategies, which I think is sort of bullshit. Like when I have a long murder trial, I come home for dinner. Um, I go back to the office to work. I think you can do two of three things. You can um, be good at your job, you can be good with your family, or you can spend lots of time on yourself. And I think that if you're good with your family and good at your work, then that takes care of the third one as well. Um, so, I mean, I think like if we're looking at advice for young lawyers, it's you got to love what you do, but you also have got to love what you don't do as well. Emily? Yeah, I'd say similar. I mean, I my advice to, to women in particular who are with men would be to, you know, be selective about who you end up with. I mean, I, I knew that Mike would always support me and he has often put me ahead of himself. It's not that he just tries to accommodate my career. He's really bent over backwards to um, advance my career. Um, I would also say don't be too beholden to a plan or a vision that you have for your career, like speaking as someone who never would have expected to be where I am right now, um, is go with the flow a little bit too, you know, and that sometimes you might need to do something a little different for a time. Like I did when my children were young, strategically, I learned a lot in that time. I didn't, you know, I, I remember it being hard for me sometimes because Mike loved his job so much and I didn't love my job, but I don't ever regret the time I spent there because it was the right thing for me to be doing at that particular time. Uh, be open to opportunity when it presents itself unexpectedly. I think if you're too focused on your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, your 15-year plan, you might miss all kinds of things that you never even contemplated should be on your plan, right? So 
uh, a kind of a go with the flow mentality. And I think as lawyers um, in particular, like we have the privilege that we're able to do that sometimes because we do generally earn a decent living. And, and, you know, if you need to have a little time out to figure things out, you can do that. And it's easier to do that if you have a partner that supports you. Yeah, I think you really have to do what you like to do. I mean, just looking at where I am now, if it was like my 15 year goal to testify on bills and, and to do things like that, I don't think it would have been a accomplishable, right? Because I mean, like, if you're looking to accomplish that goal, you sort of miss all the things that you need to do to actually get there. I mean, I started writing on things that pissed me off. Um, I started, you know, a blog against the advice of, of Matt Weber, who was my principal at the time. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I think the first time I testified on a bill, Frank called for the for the CLA, and I went up and testified on that. And so, I mean, like, it's those little steps that are a lot of work and you've got to take those little steps before you can get to your goal. And quite often the, the goal that I got, the place that I got is nowhere where I thought I'd end up going. Um, and so I think that's super important. And the other thing that I think is really important for young lawyers is you need to have that family, that support system. Cause I just think about the number of cases I've done, the stress that those cases bring with them. I don't think I would have been able to do that without sort of a family and without a support network. And especially like over the last three years, I mean, it's just been sex assault case after sex assault case. And those are that soul crushing work that has had an impact on me. And I can't imagine sort of what impact it would have if I didn't have the support that, that, you know, that, that I have. Well, with that, you know, it's uh, we're here at Montebello, and the kids aren't with any of us this weekend. Uh, That's key. key to sanity. time. Piano Man by Billy Joel <laughs> is playing in the background, so I think it's time we uh, get to the bar and have some cocktails. We're living the dream right now. It's yeah. amazing. It's pretty good. Thanks so much for having us <laughs> Thank on. Thank you so on. much. Thanks, that was great. Thanks, Appreciate Michael. it. Bye.